0: So uh, this evening's topic is the first of two talks we're going to do on dependent origination, dependent co-arising, conditioned arising, different words for this uh, Pali word, paticca samuppada. And there's a very close link almost uh, with emptiness and dependent co-arising, seen as being basically synonyms of each other often. And so this is a topic for today. And there's a way of beginning. When you survey the teachings of the Buddha, one of the things that stands out, at least it has to me, is how often uh, he uses uh, words like to see or to experience or to feel experiential words of really being in touch and contact with something that's living, the living present, what you can actually have contact with and see as opposed, as opposed to, um, you know, maybe abstract concepts, but a lot of emphasis on seeing. And as you know, the word Vipassana has the word seeing in it. it Passana means to see, um, and V is kind of a prefix of emphasis, so special seeing or seeing well, or clear seeing sometimes is translated at, but to see. And um, there's something very beautiful about seeing. When I was, uh, did my first Vipassana retreat in Thailand, it was uh, kind of a, well the monastery was still kind of being built. It was a little bit of a, Chaotic place, and I was given a little kuti, little hut on the edge of the monastery on the swamp, and um, and um, there's also like a little graveyard because right next to me there was this grave, and I did my walking meditation because it was swampy. I did it on the top of the grave, back and forth, and there was this kind of long kind of wooden planks that went across back to the dry part of the monastery. And um, maybe because I'd come from the discipline of a Zen monastery, maybe because of my own complex of thinking that Gil is short for guilt. (laughs) You know, I always felt that I had to, you know, do things the way that they're meant to be done. So here I was at this kind of little chaotic monastery and a little out there, and I was told, you know, you go, you go out there in your little hut and do sitting meditation, walking meditation, and when you finish walking, sit. And just do that, you know. And uh, once a day or twice a day, I can get a meal, but otherwise, just sit and walk and sit and walk. So that's what I did. And after several weeks of that, I. Um, for reasons I don't remember at at all, I I took a break. (laughs) And I kind of wandered, I started walking around the monastery a little bit. Just kind of randomly walking around for a stroll or something. And who should be out walking at at the same time but the abbot. So this, you know, I was busted, right? I was supposed to be sitting and walking and just doing the schedule and I was busted. It was, you know, the feeling I had, you know, uh-oh, I've been caught. Not goofing off doing something that I was, wasn't supposed to be doing. So um, so the Abbot, I don't know how far away he was, maybe 25, 30 feet away. And we were kind of perpendicular to each other. So he was walking and he turned towards me and he clearly saw me. I felt really seen. That was a really important part of this. I felt like I was really seen. But I was seen in the kind of beautiful like kinda like I was just a a tree in the in the monastery or just I was just I was just there. And I didn't feel like he was seeing me with the any imposition of any concepts of shoulds and shouldn'ts. Remember I was just living in this world of shoulds and shouldn'ts, what I should do and the good yogi I was supposed to be, and now I was busted and you know, me, 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 right. And um, uh, and he was just seeing. And I felt like I'd never really been seen with that clarity before, but I wasn't seen with, with any concepts. I was just seen as a person or as a being, or just seen. Now, I don't know what was really going on in his mind, but th- this is how it felt to me. And he just looked at me and he saw me and he just kept walking on. And, um, and that was kind of eye-opening for me. It was kind of a turning moment for me where I realized how much extra I put on and it was possible to be seen free of all these ideas of being whatever, just, just, just being seen. I didn't have to be anything, just be seen. And there's something uh, very closely connected between being seen and being loved. Um, and uh, you see it, uh, I've seen it because one of the big sufferings that I <clears throat> encounter in people who come for interviews meeting with me is a suffering that comes when people, when they were children, they weren't seen. And people will come and tell me, you know, I wasn't five, six, you know, I was a little kid, and there was no one saw me. And um, it's very, very difficult to grow up and not really properly be seen by (coughs) a parent or an adult. And so I think that, you know, being seen is uh, very similar to being loved. And here in this practice, vipassana, we're being asked to see. And I like to think of it as an act of love to see, to look more carefully, what is this? What's really going on here? Let me look more closely. Let me look through or behind the veils and see what's really there. Remember the veils, the curtains that Toto pulled aside? Before, you those of you who saw the, the Wizard of Oz, the great majestic abstract wizard, as long as it was abstract, there was kind of an illusion. But when the curtains were pulled, you saw this little friendly guy. Wasn't he friendly? I don't remember. And um, so what, what do we, when we really see, what do we see? When we pull, pull the curtains of the, the concepts we have of every, everything and ourselves and all the shoulds and shouldn'ts and what we need to be and what other people need to be. What do we see when we see? And then this idea of emptiness Um, seeing in an empty way perhaps at times is very valuable. And uh, one of my favorite emptiness quotes comes not from Buddhism but from a a Christian theologian uh, who uh, was writing uh, for um, uh, Christian chaplains, people doing chaplaincy, doing spiritual caregiving. And um, it's in a section where the the opening words are, we are all healers. Then he says, healing means, first of all, the creation of an empty but friendly space where those who suffer can tell their story to someone who can listen with real attention. Our most important question as healers is not what to say or do, but how to develop enough inner space where the story can be received. Healing is the humble, but also very demanding task of creating and offering a friendly, empty space where strangers can reflect on their pain and suffering without fear, and find the confidence that makes them look for new ways right in the center of their confusion. So it's not just Buddhists that say, look at your suffering, but a friendly, empty space where strangers can reflect on their pain and suffering without fear. So here he's talking about, um, you know, this is something a caregiver does, a spiritual chaplain kind of person would offer that support people in doing that. In a, in, a, in a meditation practice, we're our own healer, we're our own friend. Can we offer ourselves a certain kind of friendly, empty space? Empty here means, um, uh, a kind of allowance and permission for what's here to reveal itself, to show itself. It's a, it's a, it's a generous thing to do. It's like that abbot in the monastery. He was empty or he didn't, he, didn't, he was empty of concepts of what I should and shouldn't be doing. And that freed me of something. It helped me to see what I was adding to it myself. And that was very meaningful for me. <coughs> so I, I see as one of the tasks of mindfulness practice is to see clearly what it actually is, as opposed to seeing, as opposed to imposing or projecting concepts on our experience. And we, I think all of us have had the experience as people, having others project ideas of who we are. You know, once upon a time you were grumpy and every time that person sees you, kind of cautious around you because they think you're the grumpy one you know wait that only happened once or or you know just or you're someone's spouse and they see you through the filter of that spouse and you kind of want to shake them up and say wait I'm a person here there's all kinds of ways one of the little lessons that was meaningful for my Zen teacher when I was mid-twenties for some reason I was talking to him about my father I guess my relationship with my father and uh, he pointed out that um my uh, my father was a person before he was a father, and that uh, you know after I was gone from home and all that, he had a whole life separate from being a father, and it kind of woke me up. So oh, I guess this person is not just a father. There's a whole other you know maybe a lot of other people there, but I was you know so set on seeing him through that role, and with expectations and ideas of what that all meant. And um, certainly a role that he signed up for, but it's still a role. And could I now as an adult, put that aside from time to time and try to see him in other ways. What other aspects, who was he? What kind of person was this? You know, how was he as a husband? How was he as a friend to others? How was he as a child of his own parents? You You know, all these different ways and that kind of opened my, my, my view of who this person was. So a guy this morning talked about selfing, <coughs> uh, ahamkara, the making of self. As a, that the self, self is, see it more from the point of view of a verb rather than a noun. As soon as you make it into a noun, the tendency of the mind is to make it into something fixed, something that doesn't change. A verb implies something is changing in process. And um, so here's a story about the true self. Don't you all want to know what your true self is? A woman came to the monastery determined to ask the abbess, how she could discover her true self. She had assumed many identities over her lifetime. Most of them, most of them identities others had expected her to have. When she presented her concern, the abbess replied, since knowing the true self is so important for you, you should ask this question of someone who has fully penetrated this issue. We have a very learned monk here who has read every Buddhist scripture and the many commentaries. He studied with some of the greatest Buddhist teachers of this age. He has spent years meditating and has deep realization. Come, I will introduce you to him. The abbess led the woman into the courtyard where a solitary monk was absorbed in sweeping. That is him, said the abbess. When you're interested in the true self, it's important not to be abstract. Don't ask what the true self is, Ask him what his true self is. Shyly, but with great hope, the woman walked up to the monk and asked, what is your true self? The monk smiled and continued to sweep. Going back to the abbess, the woman said, he didn't answer my question. Quite the opposite, replied the abbess. He gave you the most precise answer he could at at this time. When he sweeps, his true self is the sweeping. Is that satisfying? Are you looking for something behind, deeper? Something profound, something hidden? What do you see? You see the person sweeping, the person sweeping. That's the action that's going on. What do we see? What can we see? And so one way of kind of getting into this topic of emptiness and dependent origination is to start not with abstractions, which are great to talk about, but to rather talk about what can we actually see if we look carefully at something. And so um, I'll show you something you watch. So you have to open your eyes, I guess, to look at me. So I'm sitting here and I have a lap. What happened to the lap? Where did it go? Can you say that the lap truly, permanently exists as a real thing? But can you say that, the, that the, the lap doesn't exist? Where's the lap? So there are things that we can point to that we can't quite say that they never exist, don't exist. And we can't say that they do exist in some kind of solid, permanent way. They are, they are dependent on particular actions, particular ways of being. And so, um, uh, that lap is dependent on me sitting down in a particular way. The disappearance of that act depends on me standing up. The existence of a lap is not independent of those conditions as they come into play. Now, if a if I permanently forever sat in a chair, you might say, well, laps are permanently existing things. But if you can see, if you watch the process of the lap appearing and disappearing, appearing and disappearing, then you're not going to fall into the idea that there's a permanently existing lap or the idea that there's no lap exists at all. Laps are non-existent. Lapse exist in a particular way. And so the Buddha has this very interesting word, uh, verb called becoming. And um, you know, in in colloquial English, it's kind of, you know, you're either a becoming person or not. It's very becoming of you. But in uh, Buddhist English, the word translates bhava, becoming um, is a process of things coming into existence, the process of things occurring. And so rather than asking what exists, what doesn't exist, if you're focusing on seeing, seeing verbs, seeing actions, seeing, then the question is, what's occurring? Occurring is you're seeing a process. What's occurring right now? And many of the things that we think of as fixed things are processes. Some of them are stationary for a long time, but, uh, but in variety of ways they're processes. And it's interesting to see them as such. And part of the value of careful mindfulness is to see not just, uh, see how things occur, which means to see that things, how they arise to begin with and how they pass away. So if I'm walking down the street and I see this really mean looking person that has all the clothes and paraphernalia and looks and hairdo of someone who tells me, my life is in mortal danger. I don't know what, you know. You know, know, it doesn't have to be so dramatic, but I'm walking down the street and I see this person and then I can see arise in my mind the thought, oh, that's a dangerous person. Now, if I can, if I don't see the thought arise, then there's a strong tendency to entangle what I see with my assumption. That person is in fact dangerous. I don't see any, you know, so it's mingled those, the, the opinion and the, and the seeing. But with mindfulness, we separate out and you can see the arising of the thought. Oh, that's a dangerous person. And because I can see the arising of it, I can question it. Is that really true? Let me look more carefully. Let me give the person a second chance. And then you see, well, actually the person's smiling. I hadn't seen that smile. I, th- I just saw the clothes or something and I jumped to conclusions. So you can see the arising of his thought, the dangerous person. And you can also see the passing away of it so th- you know and and when we s- there's a lot of situations in life where what we see is not the person we see our projection our assumptions our ideas about the person and it's okay i mean some of those things are appropriate like you know here at spirit rock we have cooks and when you go into the kitchen when they when they're, those people are cooking we kind of ask you to treat them like cooks. And you should have that projection. You should have that thought arise in your mind. These are cooks. But if you run into them, you know, in town someplace they their day off, they're much more than cooks. There are other things besides cooks. And so if you know how that idea of this person's a cook arises in the mind, you can also see that it can seize, so you can let go of it. And you can see, I can put that curtain aside. Maybe I can see there's more to this person just being a cook. So we do the same thing to ourselves. We project ideas of what it means to be a self, what it means to be a person. And these are really deeply ingrained in our psychology because they, they're kind of come with you know our breast milk, you know, growing up the ideas, because we have cultural ideas, family ideas, of what it means to be a, a self. And it's really hard to see how deeply embedded our particular conditioning is around the self that we have. Uh, I had a uh, dramatic uh, experience of that. I've told the story many times of of being in the monastery in Japan and, um, and spending, I was there several months with a lot of young Japanese Zen monks doing everything vigorously and quickly and whatever. Zen no chikara. Zen power was the word. Everything that you do is Zen power. And um, and we had this morning uh, cleaning session, communal cleaning session. It was kind of a ritual that had to be done with particular gusto. And so, you know, it was like uh, 10, 15 minutes or 20 minutes. It was kind of fun when you are young. And... Um, and one day, after doing it several months, I had this kind of, I kind of woke up. And I can't tell you exactly how I saw it, but it was because I was living with just the Japanese for months on end, speaking Japanese and kind of getting used to their culture. And, and I realized that we lived in di- different social universes, that they, that I was living as an individual in the midst of other individual people we were all individual people, American individualism kind of thing. And that they were operating not as individuals, but as members of a group. Like the individual was the group, and they were, they were pieces, appendages to the group. They are all working together. And we know that Japanese culture tends to be much more of a, a social culture, a collective culture, American culture, uh, European-American culture, tends to be much more um, you know, individualistic. And when I saw that, it was like, wow, I mean, it's like, I couldn't believe it. You know, they, they, they saw the whole situation so radically different. And at, at the same time, it didn't occur to me that one was better than the other. It just occurred to me, these are different ways of constructing self, different ideas, different constructs, and the way that we find our way in this life together. They're constructs, they're, you know, but it, it took going to Japan to see that I had one, how deep it was. And I saw that as I was raising my son, when he was about two years old or something, I could see that the ways I talked to him and related to him, I was passing on uh, at least my, the Norwegian version of individualism that I'd learned from my family. So, wow, look at that. I'm doing it again. And um, maybe, you know, I kind of thought, well, maybe I have to pass on something. <laughs> you know, you can't get it. We can't, we can't not pass on constructions, ideas of self to people. I don't think that's really possible. And different cultures have different ones, but they get deeply embedded. And it takes something, something really powerful to shine a light and really see the deeper conditioning around our ideas about what it means to be a person, what it means to be a self, and how they're constructs. And one of those deep kind of powers, medicines for this is this vipassana practice, where you're in a sustained, careful way, you're looking more deeply, looking more deeply, and it's sometimes to, said to me that uh, this practice is a kind of deconstruction process where because the, you're, you're quieting down or letting go of the, all the extraneous activities of the mind, you let go of the extra activities that are involved in constructing self, making ideas of how you should be in the world and how you are in relationship to other people. And we've already talked about how, you know, so much of, I think, our thoughts and stuff are self-referential in nature. what happens when their thoughts are not self-referential? I think often our thoughts are self-referential, but often they're self-referential in reference to others. And a big part of how many of us see ourself is in relationship we have a relational self. And we're trying to negotiate the relational self. It's also possible to rest and be at peace in what I like provisionally called the non-relational self where the mind is not concerned about how, I'm, how am I in relation to other people? How do other people think about me? Do other people like me, not like me? Am I better or worse than other people? Um, what do I get from that person? How is this person gonna meet my needs? Um, you know, it's, it's all, you know, this whole relational world, is an important world, but it's all part of this cons- construction activity that goes on. And it's fine to do to a certain degree, but to pull those curtains aside and then to see And one of the things to see is important things to see is not like necessarily what's behind the curtain, but what's important to see is that the the thoughts, the ideas, the beliefs, the feelings, the emotions, they arise and they pass away. There's a time when they're not there and they come into existence then they pass away. And if we can see, clearly see how something arises, then the Buddha said, we're not gonna negate and say it doesn't exist. But if you also see that it passes away, then you're not gonna say that it, that it, it does exist. So it neither, it's not that it, it doesn't not exist, and it doesn't exist in some substantial permanent way. It's an occurring phenomenon and occurring phenomena are processes that are dependently arisen. They arise because certain conditions come into play and they pass when certain conditions pass away. Now this can seem maybe excessively abstract or boring. It happens to be the insight that was the key insight the Buddha had that allowed for his awakening. It was a key insight, teaching, that his main disciple, Sariputra, heard that awakened him in a very simple way. Um, uh, Sariputra, before he met the Buddha, met one of the Buddha's disciples. And he asked, you know, who's your teacher and what does he teach? And the Buddha's disciple said to Sariputta, of the things that arise, from a cause, the Buddha has told the cause and also what their cessation is. This is the doctrine of the great teacher. Does that, you get that? Of the things that arise from a cause, the Thāgata has told the cause and also what is their cessation. So the things that occur, the Buddha says, he points to why they occur and how You know, what is it that happened, what they're dependent on. Or to say it another way, this is a very famous passage. Again, it's, you know, probably put you to sleep. But this should really excite you. This should be like, wow, this is like really interesting. This is like, this is revolutionary. This means, this means there's hope, real hope. You know, it just means you don't have to be stuck. When this is that is. From the arising of this comes the arising of that. When this isn't, that isn't. From the stopping of this comes the stopping of that. So this is a really ordinary thing to say and many of us in ordinary life know how this works. Um, uh, you know, so, I mean, it could be something like with the appearance of clouds, rain clouds, there can be rain when the clouds go away, the rain stops. A a glass full of water, when you knock it over, the water spills. There's a kind of cause and effect that goes on here. Why this is revolutionary is because it's applied to your suffering. It's applied to understand that your suffering belongs to this pattern as well. If your suffering has a cause, and that cause ceases, then the harming, the cause co- the causing, the, the conditions for the suffering go away, and the suffering ceases. So the Four Noble Truths are just a, a variation of this teaching here. The Four Noble Truths are a variation of the Buddha's teaching on dependent origination. And the simplest version of dependent origination is this one here. When this is, that is. With the arising of this comes the arising of that. When this isn't, that isn't. The stopping of this comes the stopping of that. When craving is, suffering is. With the arising of craving comes the arising of suffering. When craving isn't, suffering isn't. With the stopping of craving, suffering uh, comes the stopping of suffering. So then reworded a little bit to include the Eightfold Path. Um, There is suffering. There is the cause of suffering. There is a cessation of that cause and a cessation of suffering. And there's a path leading to it. And that formula, that idea of the Four Noble Truths, there is something, there's the origination of it, how it begins, how it arises the causes of it, and the cessation of those causes, the cessation of the thing, of X, is a very common formula that appears over and over again in the suttas, in the Four, in four Foundations of Mindfulness. It, it talks there about kno- knowing things from that point of view. In, um, and just, just over and over again, the key insight the Buddha had to make, had made and was teaching was that there's something If you look at it carefully, you'll notice the cause and the conditions and you'll notice how to seize those. You see the passing of it. So to look at this, so so the looking that we're asked to do in this practice is to stop, create empty space in a certain kind of way to allow things to be there, to see what's there. It's a big part of the practice is just to see what's there. And it's a big training. It takes sometimes a long time, this part of the training, to just see what's there without adding anything, without wanting it to be different, without changing and manipulating, fixing, uh, fighting it. It's a radical thing to just learn to see it as it is. When we can see it clearly for what it is, then as the Nowin quote says, then the story of what it's all about can show itself. You can see more deeply what's going on. So if you look really carefully at the suffering connected to your ideas of self, or if, or if you're suffering in general, a good percentage of people suffering is somehow or other connected to their sense of self, their idea of self. So stop and look at that suffering. Don't react to it. Don't abstract about it. Just kind of just be present in a kind way for it. And then you might be able to see at some point that the suffering comes from an attachment, a clinging to some idea of what you need or what you want or what you don't want. So for example, when I was in the Zen monastery in Tassahara, uh, I was working in the kitchen. And um, at some point I started suffering. And suffering is a great teacher, unfortunately. And because I suffered enough, I said, what's going on here? And then I noticed that I was neurotic, neurotically obsessed about having everybody like me. Everybody. That's a tall order. And so I was doing, an, and I was a kitchen manager, which is like, you know, <laughs> it's, it's a lost cause. <laughs> and I was trying to do an amazing amount of social gymnastics to try to make, it, make everyone kind of like me. One guy, one person said at some point, one of the people working for me said, come with me, he said, we're going outside. And I went outside and he said, Gil, if you weren't so sincere, I'd punch you out. (laughs) So I didn't succeed in that one. But uh, I saw the suffering, my suffering wasn't that people didn't like me. The suffering was that I wanted that so much. And so then I, because I suffered enough, I could see it. And then it's possible as as um, Sally pointed out, so beautifully I thought, know, you, you can watch the arising of self occur. And if you see the arising of it, you have more options. You can maybe not believe it. You can say, well, this is interesting, you know, but I don't have to go along with that. Or, you know, as opposed to the old policy of you know, going running with it, you know, letting it take over. And so to stop, create an empty space and look and see, it's really amazing to see something arise. And if you're still enough, you can watch all the different kinds of selfing, these actions, the activity of selfing arise. And then you see that the selfing that arises is is a verb. It's not not, not a thing that either exists or doesn't exist. It's occurring. So there's a very famous passage uh, in this uh, quote 28, that I think maybe now you're a little bit prepared to appreciate. Uh, a monk asked the Buddha, what way is the right view? What's the right way of understanding or seeing things? And um, the Buddha replied, this world, meaning here means the world of people, people, for the most part, depend upon a duality, upon the no- notion of existence and the notion of non-existence. But for one, but for one who sees the origin of the world as it really is with correct wisdom, there is no notion of non-existence in regard to the world. And for one who sees the cessation of the world as it really is with correct wisdom, there is no notion of existence in regard to the world. So you know, he it, it doesn't mean the world of the you know the the earth. Few of us have seen been around for the beginning of it. But he's talking about the. Um, the the world that the senses creates, the world of sensations, of perceptions, the one that's constantly occurring here and now, the immediacy. These Buddha said the world is really discovered in this six foot or this, this phantom long body of how we construct, experience, sense, feel, the experienced world that we, we have. And it's possible to notice how the experienced world arises and passes. It's possible to um, to notice, as you're sitting here, the arising of hunger or the arising of tiredness. When I was on long retreats, I made it uh, uh, at uh, one of my little assignments, tasks, games, was to see if I could notice every day the first little moment of feeling tired. Like, you know, toward, you know towards the evening or something, you know, when, the shift happened. And uh, usually I miss that moment. But you know, it was like, what what is that first moment? Because if I could see the first moment of the rising of tiredness, then for me, I was more likely to notice all the ideas and, and clinging and resistance that I had about being tired, which weighed me down. And I could tell you gory stories of how I suffered when I started getting tired near the end of the day on retreats. I thought it was a personal failing that I should be tired at four o'clock in the afternoon when I've been up since two, (laughs) you know, and so it took a long time to realize I'm just tired, just tired. I didn't have to add all the other stuff, but it was easier to see how I created that stuff if I could be there at the beginning as things arose. So the world, very, our immediacy, it's the immediate experience, I think. This world is for the most part shackled by engagement, clinging, and adherence. For this, um, for a person with right view does not become engaged with or cling to these mental standpoints, adherences, underlying tendencies. Such a person does not take a stand upon myself. Such a person has no perplexity or doubt about what arises That what arises is only suffering. What seizes is only suffering seizing. His or her knowledge about this is independent of others. In this way, it is in this way that there is a right view. So this idea of being independent of others is a powerful expression. And Buddha was pointing to not relying on him as the teacher tells you how things are, but to really know for yourself independent of others. And, what you, and, you, and that the, the Dharma is found in seeing dependent arising. In the quote just before this one, on in 24, one who sees dependent arising sees the Dhamma. One who sees the Dhamma sees dependent origination, dependent arising. So if you really see how things arise, when or say it differently, when you see how things arise and you see how they can cease, then you see the Dharma. So we keep looking, okay, what's here, what's here? Not to overlay dependent origination on the world, but to have the world show dependent origination because we see clearly. So then uh, this goes on, this passage 28. All exists is one extreme. All does not exist is the second extreme. Without varying towards either of these extremes, the Buddha teaches the Dhamma by the middle, the middle path, the middle way. And then he goes on and describes what Sally will talk about tomorrow. I think the 12th fold chain of dependent origination. So what exists is not, things don't exist or not exist. Things that we see are occurring and they occur dependent upon causes and conditions that come into play. What exists behind what's occurring? What exists that we can't see? It's an interesting question. And sometimes we start seeing layers and layers of dependent origination. But I think that the, you know, the Buddha was suggesting it's enough just to see. Be content with your seeing. You don't have to go looking further for you know, deeper metaphysical truths of things. So in that quote, now 27, just before this, responding to questions from a Brahmin, the Buddha said, everything exists is the oldest metaphysical view. Everything does not exist is the second oldest metaphysical view. Everything is a unity is a third metaphysical view all is a plurality, is the fourth metaphysical view. Without varying to any of these extremes, the Thāgata teaches the Dhamma by the middle, and then he goes on to explain dependent origination. We don't, have a, we don't, we don't need to posit that things exist, things don't exist, that things, there's, a, there's a unity or oneness, or that there's a plurality or a dual, you know, duality or non-duality. We don't have to posit these things All we do with the Buddha, I kept emphasizing, just see what's here. What is, what do you see? And if you look well enough, chances are, you'll start seeing that things arise and they pass. And when things arise and pass, we're seeing something very significant. This story is called To Be Buddha. A nun once asked the abbess, who was the Buddha really? Smiling and leaning forward mischievously, the abbess said, don't you already know? Confused by this answer to her question, the nun felt overwhelmingly self-conscious. She couldn't find the words to even say she didn't know. The abbess then explained, to know who the Buddha is, you have to start with something simple. Take breathing, for example. Like you right now, the the Buddha breathed. When you are aware of your breathing, you are aware of the physical experiences the Buddha knew as he breathed. When you see how your breaths arise and pass away, it is just as the Buddha saw his breaths arise and pass away. Like you right now, the Buddha experienced physical sensations in his body. When you see that the many sensations you experience through the day arise and pass away, it is just as the Buddha saw his sensations arising and passing. Like you right now, the Buddha experienced pleasant and unpleasant feelings. When you see directly how your experiences of pleasure and pain arise and pass away, It is just how the Buddha saw pleasure and pain come and go. Like you right now, the Buddha had thoughts. When you see those thoughts come and go, you are experiencing how the Buddha saw thoughts arise and pass away. Like you right now, the Buddha experienced particular states of mind. When you see your state of mind arise and pass, you are experiencing how the Buddha saw his mind states arise and pass. Like you right now, the Buddha was aware of himself. When you see how your ideas of who you are arise and pass away, you are experiencing how the Buddha saw his ideas of self arise and pass away. Hearing this, the nun became aware of her experience as it was happening in the present moment. In a way she never imagined possible, she felt physically close to the Buddha. Rather than someone who lived thousands of years ago, she sensed a timelessness which no time separated her from the Buddha. I understand, said the nun. Is this all I need to know? In reply the abbess said, No. There is one more thing. When you are when you see clearly that clinging to breathing, sensations, feelings, thoughts, states of mind, and self also arise and pass away, then you will know who the Buddha is then you'll be free. So we turn to look and we're not asked to look at something abstract something complicated, but we're asked to look at the immediacy of our experience as it's occurring and try not to see it through the filter of a lot of ideas and concepts that we've inherited from our family, our culture, our society, our life experiences, but in a way to see things fresh, to create that empty friendly space of a healer to see what's really here. And, you know, part of the task is creating this empty space. One of the meanings of emptiness is not to have all these presuppositions that we overlay and then to look clearly what is here. It's interesting that some of the great philosophical quests that people have sometimes can be answered very differently. If we turn around and look, what's here? A nun once asked the abbess, what is the meaning of life? In reply, the abbess asked, "What motivates your question?" Thinking for a while, the nun said, "Fear." Resolve your fear, the abbess said, and you won't need to answer. The, and you won't need an answer to the meaning of life. So to stop and look, turn around and look more deeply. What is it? Not the abstract questions, but what's really here for you. What's motivating you? What's driving you? What's occurring for you here? And it comes to it comes to the simplicity of here. This breath, this sound, this thought. And it's very tricky with thoughts because they can have so much. Seem to have so much substance to them. Thoughts can be more real than anything that's real. But if we see that a thought arises, it, thoughts are, as, you know. Or the, you know, lighter than anything? You see the thought, then they can question it. Maybe see its transparency, see its optionality, see the way in which it puts cl- uh, colored glasses over us and we see through the thought into what we think is real. So to keep looking and we'll see the dependent origination. And one who sees dependent origination sees emptiness. I'd like to end with one more story. And this story is called, uh, titled, uh, Wisdom and Compassion. And the title was an important part of this story. Though I wondered whether perhaps for, for you I should have titled it Emptiness. So either way. When it was time for the monastic community to meditate, the new nun headed for the meditation hall. Placing her shoes in the shoe rack, she looked down and saw they were not lined up parallel to each other. This helped her to see that she was slightly distracted due to the excitement of her first day in the monastery. Letting go of her distraction, she looked more carefully at what was in front of her. She she saw that her shoes were old and worn. Remembering when they were new, She reflected on how all things are transient and how quickly they change. Soon she thought, I will be an old nun in this monastery. Reflecting on how precious each moment was, she reached down to straighten her shoes. Doing so, she noticed that if she moved them to the left, then there would be space for another pair of shoes to the right of hers. Thinking of the other monks and nuns who were coming to the meditation hall, she gently pushed her shoes to the side. Happy, the new nun entered the meditation hall. Wisdom and compassion in action, emptiness in action. May you meet emptiness, wisdom, compassion in how you put your shoes down, in how you open the door, in how you pick up your fork, and how you chew your food, and how you walk the paths of spirit rock, as how you sit down on the cushion, Is how you attend to your breath, how you attend to your suffering, creating the empty, friendly space for it all, seeing it directly and clearly for what it is, each detail, each thing, in and of itself as it's occurring. So let's uh, take a couple of minutes to sit quietly.